0: Welcome to episode 146 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Brian Lonsdale Linda McIntyre Tim Alford Megan Crosswell Mackenzie Saxon Alana Cook Elizabeth Jones Greg Gagnon Skyla Walker Kitty Howard Samantha Little White Witch Angela Rowe Christian Shackon, Leanne M Bridget Curtin, Johnny, Emily Privet, Holly Blandin, Evelyn Packinwattick, Shelby Yu, Jasmine Fokers, Kelly Smith, and Mary Carell. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I appreciate it so much and I'm so thankful for you every single day. And our film review this week our film review is Elves. Elves was released in 2021. It has 5.5 out of 10 on IMDb and 32% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is actually a series. It has six episodes in total and each episode is about half an hour long. While spending Christmas on a remote island, a family discovers that the area is populated with terrifying elves. You know what? I'm going to be really honest. I didn't have high hopes for this before I watched it. I had kind of glanced. I saw the IMDB score, the Rotten Tomatoes score, and I thought, oh, this is going to be awful. Some of the reviews were very, very aggressive about this series, but actually, it's not that bad. But I think in order for this review to make more sense, I need to pad out the synopsis a little bit. So... You have a family, a mother, father, son and daughter that go to a remote island for Christmas and on their way to their accommodation, they hit a creature. The family think they've hit a pothole, but the daughter is convinced they've hit some sort of animal. So she goes to rescue the animal and it is a baby elf. And now, purely based on the title of this series, I'm not entirely sure that that's in any way a spoiler. But just in case anybody thinks it is a spoiler, that is what happens in the first episode. First things first, what are the things that I liked about this series? It's very bingeable. So I watched all six episodes in one sitting. So that's about three hours of watching in or around, maybe a little bit less. And it is it is very bingeable. It's fast moving, fast moving it's not it's not boring I'll give it that and I think six episodes was the perfect amount of time to tell the story that they needed to tell I thought that the baby elf that is hit by the car that the little girl decides to look after was incredibly cute I think I would probably want to have a version of that too kind of reminds me of like a little gremlin type thing very cute it's got a little coconut head I mean it eats a cat at one point which is less cute but it, it is a very sweet little creature I liked the folklore of it I liked the folklore of it a lot as you guys know having listened for for whatever amount of time I love a bit of fairy lore I thought the elves in this were so cool I thought they were so well done they were depicted as being like part of nature They emerged from the ground. They, I mean, they didn't look great. They had these coconut heads, which kind of got a bit comical. But the way that they were portrayed as being almost like trees that have come to life, I thought was very original and cool. And I enjoyed watching them very much. And I liked the folklore about the elves have been there and the people on the island are there to make sure that nothing happens to nature. And that's why it is so important that the people are there to protect nature, to appease the elves. It was very interesting. I enjoyed it. There also, unfortunately, was an awful lot to dislike about this series. Mostly, I think, actually, the main character, who is this girl who's about like 12 or 13, who decides to look after this baby elf. She's very annoying. And I didn't think she was going to be very annoying when I first started watching it. And then she very quickly became... In fact, she is actually the root cause of all of the trouble in the series. Every single thing that goes wrong, she is the reason why. And it's very frustrating. If you go somewhere remote... And the locals approach you... The big, burly, surly locals approach you... And tell you aggressively to stay away from the big, fenced-off forest... ...you stay away from the big fenced-off forest... ...because no good can come of you... ...going against what the locals say. That's a fact. And the girl in this story... ...goes against everything... ...everybody says to her. And as a result... ...shit hits the fan. Time and time again... ...despite having seen with her own two eyeballs... ...all of the trouble she is causing... ...through her own behaviour... ...the consequences of her own actions... ...she still continues... To make very obviously bad choices. And I know it's to drive the story. I understand that. But it is frustrating to watch. At times. To be honest. At times I felt like. You know what. Just feed her to the elves. And be done with it. Because no good can come of her. In general. She's always going to make the wrong decision. She's always going to get in trouble. She's always going to piss off. Supernatural entities. It's just what she's designed to do. So just feed her to the elves. Be done with it. On that point, there is a very refreshing part in this series where the little girl does say, "This is all my fault," and the woman in the the woman of the island turns to her and says, "Yes, this absolutely is all your fault. Everything is your fault. It is your fault and I thought, "Yeah, good, I'm glad somebody's told her it's her fault because she needs to know the final thing I guess that I need to say that I didn't like about this series was the fact that there was very little character development. I I didn't really get attached to any of the characters. That's difficult when you only have six episodes and they're short enough episodes. And I understand they actually just wanted to tell a story about elves and elf folklore rather than creating a a drama based around the personalities of the characters. So I do understand that. But it is I think it's more difficult when you watch and you're not really invested in any of the characters. All in all, it's not terrible. I think I'd go as far as giving it a four out of five. Is that too much? Maybe a three and a half. Like, it's not terrible. And at the moment, I am very anti-Christmas, anti-Christmas films. And this is a good antidote to Christmas films. Christmas is happening in the background of the film. But the real action is all about crazy elves in a wood what more do you want from your Christmas to sum it up really nicely there was a comment on Instagram when I posted that this was this week's film review from Jerry loves frecky I think is the username and they said it's easy on the brain a story as old as the hills it's just great fun and I think that's true it is just silly and fun it's predictable it's not deep but it's a fun watch Before we go on to the story this week, I just wanted to say that this is going to be the last main episode this year. But there will be lots of pre-recorded content still to come your way over Christmas and into the new year. So just because there's no main episodes doesn't mean that there isn't going to be any content at all. I might be taking a break from main episodes in the new year. I'm not entirely sure yet. There is a lot of video content that I want to focus on. There's stuff that I want to do. And finding the time to do it is difficult. I also have some writing projects that I want to do. And again, finding the time to do that as well as recording Patreon and recording main episodes and recording mini episodes is tough going. But I will keep you guys updated. But just in case you don't hear any main episodes into the new year and you think, oh, I wonder what's going on. It's just because I'm taking a little break. That's all. And just to say before we get into the story today, thank you to everybody who is listening for all of your support this year it has meant the absolute world to me so thank you so our story today is one of my favourite ghost stories probably ever it's bizarre it's enduring it's ridiculous but it's also really engaging so let's get into it it's probably reasonable to say that every town has a haunted house story The house that people talk about in whispers. Maybe there was something that happened there that left an indelible stain on the brick and mortar. Maybe it was inhabited by people who were considered strange by the townsfolk. Whatever the truth is, these buildings exist all over the world. Buildings that strike fear into the hearts of people and stir up ferocious curiosity in others. Our story today is about one of those houses a house that will forever be known as the most haunted house in London. The house inspired fear into those who knew it. It was in Mayfair, in central London, and was built in the mid-18th century by architect William Kent. Locals would avoid it at all costs, and children would gather huddled across the street, daring each other to get as close as possible. But no one dared to go inside. They knew what happened to those who did. Those who unwittingly entered the threshold, and those who did so boldly, all met a grisly and untimely end. What didn't help was that comparable to the pristine walls and manicured gardens of the other houses in the square, number 50 was the very picture of misery. At least that's how Charles G. Harper described it in his book Haunted Houses. The house had fallen into disrepair and it was filthy. The yard and gardens were overgrown and wild, only adding to the darkness that oozed from the house. It seemed inevitable that this house would have created ghost stories, regardless of whether the people had died in there. But the people were right to stay away, because the creature that lived in number 50 showed no mercy. The horror began in 1789. The community in Mayfair were affluent and thriving, and they had willfully turned a blind eye to what was happening in Number 50. The beautiful Adeline was seen every so often by the local people, who often commented on her beauty and her poise. But it was always said sadly, as though she were ill, or as though her beauty came at a cost. It was well known that Adeline lived with her uncle, who was overbearing and abusive, and she lived like a bird trapped in a cage, having fleeting glimpses of the outside world, but never quite getting the opportunity to truly experience it. As with many of these cases at that time, there was no intervention, and no white knight to save her. And Adeline was found dead one morning, face down on the pavement in front of number 50, Adeline had fallen from the second floor window, although people questioned in hushed tones whether she had actually fallen, whether she had jumped, or whether she was pushed. It wasn't long after her death that the reports began to come into the police station thick and fast. A young woman would be seen hanging from the same window ledge, desperately clinging on for her life, and guttural cries escaping from her throat with the effort of trying to hold on. Then she would suddenly fall, screaming, and disappear into thin air. Subsequent visitors to the house reported seeing the figure of a young woman roaming the halls at night-time, wringing her hands and crying. Furniture and items began to move around, and a strange smell of rotting meat seeped throughout the house. Former Prime Minister George Canning even wrote about the strange happenings in the home in his diaries. He had bought the property in 1800 and experienced frequent sounds that he couldn't explain. Loud bangs could be heard throughout the house and footsteps running through the corridors. Following Canning's death in the late 1820s, neighbours began to report that the house would be quiet and dark during the day. But at night time they would see the unmistakable flickers of candlelight in the windows and glimpse the shadow of a person in the dim light. Screams could be heard from deep within the bowels of the building and something rattled and banged around in the basement at night time. And so our tale trundled along. The rumours about the house ebbed and flowed in the local community until 1840, when an event so shocking solidified the house's reputation as being the resting place of evil. Robert Warboys was young and stupid. Like many other 20-year-olds, he whiled away his free time drinking with his friends in local pubs and chasing women. On this particular evening, the chat in the pub turned to ghost stories, and one of his acquaintances told the story of the strange goings-on in Berkeley Square warboys laughed and jeered at his friends he had no fear of these ridiculous tales and no problem telling anyone who would listen that anyone who believed these stories was clearly an imbecile rattled by the attempted public humiliation and more than a bit peeved with warboys flamboyant bravado the storyteller dared warboys to spend the night in the house if he was so brave and so dismissive then he would surely have no problem staying a night on the second floor, which was notoriously the most dangerously haunted part of the house. Warboys was fuelled by his own ego, and gin, and readily agreed, and made his way to number 50 in order to arrange a room to sleep in for the night. He banged on the door and explained his predicament to the current landlord. The landlord told him that he was welcome to rent a room for the night, but that he would not allow him to stay alone on the second floor. It was far too dangerous. But Warboys insisted. He was not going to be branded a coward, and he begged and pleaded until the landlord reluctantly agreed, but on two conditions. Warboys would have a pistol with him for his own protection, and he would stay in the room that was equipped with a rope that would ring a bell and alert the rest of the house to danger if it was pulled. Warboys was still not convinced that this might actually be a bad idea and he was determined to win his bet. He made his way to his room, pistol in hand, ready to settle in for the night. An hour later, the landlord was awoken from his sleep by the shrill ringing of the bell. He leaped into action and ran up the stairs to Warboys on the second floor. As he hit the stairs, a single shot from a pistol rang out. The landlord burst through the door and saw warboys cowering in a corner, deathly white, with his eyes bulging and his mouth open in a terrified, silent scream. He was dead. There was a bullet hole in the wall opposite him, and no obvious cause of his death. In 1859, a man named Lord Littleton decided that he would brave the terror of the second floor in order to prove once and for all whether the property was haunted, and if it was haunted, what it was haunted by. He went to the room equipped with a pistol. It was late that night, and Littleton was awoken from his slumber by an odd noise. He listened in the darkness and fumbled for his pistol. It was the sound of wet suction. There was no other way to describe it, and he arose from his bed to try and determine where the sound could be coming from. He followed the sound and was led to a corner of the room that seemed to be darker than the rest. And as he inched ever closer, a creature leaped from the darkness, causing Littleton to fire his pistol staggering backwards. The creature was gone in a flash, and again the room was left with a bullet hole in the wall and a black, oozing, slimy substance on the floor. Littleton stood dumbfounded. He had seen the creature as it leapt. It was a dark, tentacled thing that looked like a deformed sea creature, and now all that remained of it was this mysterious slime. And again, the house sat quiet, empty and dark until a man named Kentfield too became a victim of the house. Kentfield's wife was the maid of a family who had opted to rent the property at number 50. While she busied herself cleaning, she made her way into the room on the second floor. The family were alerted to something having gone terribly wrong by her screaming. They found her huddled in a corner of the room, screaming in fear and babbling about the thing that had tried to get her. She was taken away that evening by doctors to a sanatorium. Devastated, but determined to discover why his wife had been driven to madness by fear, Kentfield opted to sleep in the room. He was found dead the next morning. His wife had also died in the hospital. In 1887, number 50 Berkeley Square would strike again. The HMS Penelope had docked, and the crew members descended on London Town for some reverie. Robert Martin and Edward Blunden found themselves in the room at 50 Berkeley Square, unaware of the tragedies that had occurred there previously. In the middle of the night they were awoken to a wet slapping sound, the sound of something dragging itself along the floorboards slowly and laboriously. The floorboards creaked under the weight of this thing, and just like Littleton before them, the men listened in the darkness to these incomprehensible sounds. Blunden scrambled from his bed and came face to face with a pulsing mass of grey, a creature of some sort that was slowly inching its way across the floorboards. Blunden was stunned, but was even more stunned when the creature suddenly lunged at him and wrapped itself around his throat. He flailed and gasped while Martin tried to prise the creature from his shipmate's throat. Panicking, Martin ran to get help, and when he arrived back to the room a few minutes later with an on-patrol police officer in tow, Blunden was gone. Blunden was later found dead in the basement, with his eyes wide and his mouth open in an eternal silent scream of terror. The house remained quiet and abandoned for some time until the 1930s when Ed Maggs turned it into an antique bookshop. When Maggs moved in, the second floor had been padlocked. It remained a bookshop until 2015. It's easy to dismiss this story as folklore, but there is something intriguing about it. As always, there are numerous theories as to what happened in number 50, if anything at all actually happened. Many people believe that the wild stories that were told were simply a cover-up for other nefarious activities. Perhaps Martin had injured Blunden himself, and knew of the previous reputation of Berkeley Square. Littleton was a novelist, and was obsessed with the paranormal, and perhaps he wanted to drum up interest in a new novel. Perhaps there was something criminal happening in number 50 that needed to be kept under wraps and what better way to keep people out than to invent ghost stories? Or maybe the stories were just that outlandish made-up tales that have been passed down from generation to generation about the creepy house in Berkeley Square. But there is a part of the story that I left out that had very real cultural significance And may leave you with a few questions. Earlier I mentioned that when ex-Prime Minister Canning had died, shadows, candlelight and screams were all reported by locals who believed the place to be haunted. But there was actually somebody there. A real person. When Canning died, the property was rented out by Elizabeth Curzon to a man named Thomas Myers. Myers was the son of a Tory politician, and was described in writing as being and I quote, “exceedingly eccentric, to a degree which bordered on lunacy. Lady Dorothy Neville was related to Myers, and wrote in her memoirs about what had happened to him. He had bought number 50 Berkeley Square before he got married, and he had set about doing the house up for him and his wife to be. She wrote that, He had made every preparation to receive his bride in it, ordered carpets, pictures, china, everything. But a few days before the day fixed for the wedding, the lady to whom he was engaged threw him over and married another man. He remained there, leaving everything in exactly the same state as when he heard the news which had ruined his life. Some of the carpets were not even unrolled and remained for years tied up just as they were when they left the warehouse. Myers had been ditched by his bride-to-be, and it completely broke him. He slept all day and wandered the house at night, often crying and wailing. He spent an inordinate amount of time in his basement, and there were genuine concerns that he had begun practising dark magic in his attempts to win back the love of his life. Myers' story was so strange that, ...that it is believed that he was the inspiration for Charles Dickens's Miss Havisham from Great Expectations. There was also the harrowing story of a Mr. Dupree who rented rooms at the house and had a brother who had a severe mental illness. Rather than commit him to a workhouse or an asylum, Mr. Dupree locked him in the basement of number 50 and fed him through a hatch in the door until he died... So the people who reported screams, moans, cries, shadows and candlelight were actually telling the truth. In 1870, a W.E. Howlett wrote about the house. He said, The mystery of Berkeley Square still remains a mystery. The story of the haunted house in Mayfair can be recapitulated in a few words. The house contains at least one room of which the atmosphere is supernaturally fatal to the body and mind. A girl saw, heard and felt such horror that she went mad and never recovered sanity enough to tell how or why. A gentleman, a disbeliever in ghosts, dared to sleep in number 50 and was found a corpse in the middle of the floor after frantically ringing for help in vain. Rumour suggests other cases of the same kind all ending in death, madness or both as a result of sleeping or trying to sleep in that room. The very party walls of the house when touched are found saturated with electric horror. It is uninhabited, save by an elderly man and his wife who act as caretakers, but even these have no access to the room. This is kept locked, the key being in the hands of a mysterious and seemingly nameless person who comes to the house once every six months, locks up the elderly couple in the basement, and then unlocks the room and occupies himself in it for hours. Whatever really happened in Number 50 we'll never actually know. It feels like it might be an urban legend, or a case of confirmation bias, but in reality there were some very tragic and needless deaths and events that occurred at Number 50 Berkeley Square. And whether the stories had a grain of truth... Or were purely fictional, they still survive to this day. I love this story so much because it's just such a roller coaster. What starts off as a really sad story about this girl who is trapped in her house by her uncle, almost in like a Sweeney Todd Joanna type story, and then she dies mysteriously. And you get these reports of people seeing a girl in the corridor and people thinks we moved around and and that's all pretty standard ghost story stuff it comes with tragedy it's understandable and then you get some sort of octopus just hanging around on the second floor it's not where you think the story's going to go but it's where the story goes and this tentacled being is seen by two people at least two people maybe three people who knows and three people who are Of very different class groups in society at the time. So in Victorian London, the upper echelons of society would not have fraternised with the likes of lower class men who were drafted into the Navy, who were sailors. No way. So that story wouldn't have been shared between them. It's just very, it's a very wild little story. And I think it's so demonstrative of how much we love stories and we love storytelling. Like 50 Berkeley Square was obviously the house, the haunted house in Mayfair at the time. And people, I'd imagine, told their children stories about it to scare them. And then their children passed on their stories to their children. And there are so many, if you've heard this story before, you might've heard a different variation. There are so many different variations of this story. Like for example, there's variations where Warboys doesn't die, where he actually gets really frightened and flees the house and is never seen again. There's variations where Blunden is found decapitated or he's found on the railings outside of the house like mangled impaled there's all different variations of the story and that's because it is an old story that has been told and wasn't formally written down for a very long time I think the real thing about this story that I think is fascinating is Thomas Myers he is just such a strange character and he did exist, so that's not a made-up part of the story. And he was written about in Lady Neville's memoirs. And it kind of threw a bit of sleuthing. So she I don't think she directly named him in the memoirs, but I think it was very clear that the, the person she was talking about was Thomas Myers and that he had lived in 50 Berkeley Square. And the, the, the fact that he was already quite an eccentric character and then he had this massive heartbreak and it completely caused him to have a mental breakdown and he behaved in all these really strange ways and then he was never seen by the people in the community apparently that he never went out so it was understandable then that if you walk past this house at night time and you're seeing shadows and flickering candlelight and somebody's howling and screaming I mean it was Thomas Myers but to the outside world it seemed a lot more nefarious and a lot more supernatural than that And it is, when I read this, I read the link between Thomas Myers and Miss Havisham, I thought, wow, I've never heard that before. So Miss Havisham, if you've never read Great Expectations, is a character who behaves in a very similar manner. She's jilted at the altar and never removes her wedding dress, keeps the house exactly the same as it was when she was jilted, stops all the clocks at the time that she was jilted at. Like, it's all very dramatic. And then she becomes this really pale, haggard, terrifying creature because she never goes out in the sunlight. Anyway, she's a very dark character. But Charles Dickens had this habit of basing the characters that he wrote on characters that existed in real life to a point where it actually it got him in trouble a few times. And there was a contemporary who claimed to have told Charles Dickens this story of basically Thomas Myers um, around the time that this was all happening. So it would have been gossip at the time. And then Dickens wrote about Miss Havisham. And I just thought, wow, how interesting that this man, this character, this Thomas Myers was so bizarre that he was the inspiration for this incredibly gothic character and a really, really dark, sad, disturbed character. And it's no wonder that these rumours of a haunting and of this house being terrifying sprung up around him, especially when you pair it with this story of this Mr. Dupree who locked his brother in the basement because he was mentally unwell and kept him there until he died. Which is really it's a really dark story but it's not actually that far removed from things that were happening in society at the time. So it's difficult to know whether these horrible tragedies were happening in real life and the ghost stories grew up around those particular tragedies or maybe there was weird stuff that happened in the house and then more strange events happened over time because the house was there for a long period in fact it's still there was it just compounded by years and years of strange events of strange people that lived there of tragedies it's not anything to do with the house being haunted or the house being a paranormal hot spot it's just years of living and these people who drifted in and out of the house there are some who maintain or claim or speculate that Thomas Myers was doing some sort of ritualistic stuff in the basement to try and win back his the love of his life and that as a result the house became a paranormal hotspot that he was directly responsible but I I I feel like that might be just a little bit of a a cult of the legend that grew up around him I don't know if if I was a demon if I was reincarnated as a demon would I want to be a demonic cephalopod. I don't think so. Because it just sounds like an octopus. Whatever the creature was. That was apparently attacking people. I think as well. There's um, this story. This idea that. Say Blunden and Martin for example. Had a fight and one strangled the other. And the other one blamed a paranormal octopus. I don't know. I mean we've all lied to try and get out of things. Whether you do when you're a child. When you're older. Whatever it is. I don't know if blaming a paranormal octopus for strangling somebody is what is the route that I personally would go down, to be really frank. I think it's a bit of a stretch. Unless, like I said, they were aware of Littleton's experience beforehand. Seems kind of unlikely. It seems like the experience of Littleton would probably be a localised legend. But I don't know. A paranormal cephalopod is not, not something that I'd be throwing out there as a reasonable cause for the death of somebody it sounds very Lovecraftian to to the point where I actually I googled when did Lovecraft become really popular which was much much later than these stories are alleged to have taken place so I don't think there was a direct Lovecraft influence Cthulhu was in the early 1900s so much later than these stories took place. But let me know what you think. Do you think this is just an urban legend? Do you think maybe the house had some weird stuff going on and some people took advantage of that? Do you think there really was a haunted octopus crawling around the floors? I did read some theories before before I finish up this episode about how it was... <laughs> that it was actually an octopus, that it somehow made its way to the second floor of 50 Berkeley Square, having come into the dock on the bow of a ship, crawled its way through the streets of London or up through the sewers and was now wandering around on the second floor of Berkeley Square trying to kill people. But I'm very aware that they are very intelligent creatures and can escape their tanks and can wander around on land, but I don't think an octopus is going to survive on the second floor of a townhouse in Mayfair in London for a very long period of time. Just a thought. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode and thank you so much for listening to all of the episodes this year. Just to remind you that this is the last main episode of 2021. I will be back in at some point in early 2022 with some more main episodes but until then there's lots of pre-recorded content so you'll still be getting all your spooky stories. And for those people who are finding Christmas difficult this year who are not feeling the festive season I get you, I see you, I feel you there'll be lots of escapism in pre-recorded content for the next couple of weeks. So if that helps you through the holiday period at all, then I am happy to be of service. If you would like to send in your own spooky story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.gmail.com. You can also check out our website, reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And on that note, I shall see you next year.